When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. So exciting. Me, today's topic is particularly exciting because it's all about medicine. My guest at 8.15, Dr. Paula Bernstein, for many years an OBGYN at Cedars who retired and now writes detective mysteries. And the star of her books is Hannah Klein, a detective who is an OBGYN. It made me think all week, this fertile territory for creativity of the world of medicine and surgery. You heard in the first hour, a lot of clapper vision for Zion Williamson and Luka Doncic, as well as the Weekend Warrior Nation, the congregation, which, by the way, happy Easter and happy Passover. By the way, I hate the holiday of Passover as a Jewish guy. We'll get into that some other time, but the food just drives me crazy. But it made me think all week, this fertile ground of medicine you can appreciate it either as a patient or actually as a doctor as a doctor michael crichton who passed away at age 66 10 years ago terrible 2008 actually from lymphoma but whoa is this guy brilliant he created so many stories, the TV show ER, Jurassic Park, Twister, the Andromeda Strain. Guy was amazing. But it came from the world of medicine. And he used those stories that he learned in medical school and realized one day, hell, I don't want to be a doctor, but I want to tell the stories of medicine and how the body works. Listen to Diane Sawyer and his, her interview with the great Michael Crichton. And his little notion about genetic experiments and the hubris of scientists who think they could control everything they create. This time, the detail came out of his mind. Every creature, a little bit of Crichton. How did you decide how they should move each of them? I'd be there working for hours and hours, and my assistant would come in at 10 o'clock in the morning. And one day she came in, and she was very alarmed. She said, what are you doing? And I think she thought I was having a seizure because I was going... But I was, I was just being a raptor, you know, trying to bite somebody's limbs. The movie Jurassic Park has grossed nearly a billion dollars worldwide. Michael Crichton made $22 million in the last two years. Did you have a sensation of saying, wow, I'm really smart? Never. No. I still don't have that feeling. You don't? No. I've read that you said I have a first-class mind. That you've been surprised to enter a room and find someone smarter than you. Happens rarely. This is all true. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's a super smart guy, but he was six foot nine inches tall. So he always felt out of place. You could either use that as an asset in your life or it could crush you. Listen to more about the journey of Michael Crichton to medical school and then realizing I don't want to practice medicine, but I sure want to tell stories about medicine. I was really uncomfortable. You know, I was the tallest person in the the world, as far as I could tell. Older kids chased me home and beat me up. I don't think there's any question that I did have a kind of withdrawal. When he got to Harvard Medical School, he withdrew again. A sensitive, questioning student shocked at the way they were training doctors to be imperious, impersonal. The most common thing that 
people want from their doctors is time. And instead they get pills. So listen to Diane Sawyer say in this soundbite, he didn't want to do medicine for the medicine, but he saw the fertile territory for storytelling and creativity. You know, but when you think about it, why do they want the time? What, is, what does the time mean? They want time. They want to talk. They want to have some. I think that's, that's a kind of healing that can occur, a verbal communication. More and more, medical school became simply material for the thrillers he'd begun writing, as his insistent questioning at Harvard made him a rebel and a pariah. I was becoming accustomed by my third year to often eating meals in the cafeteria alone. And then I sold this book, The Andromeda Strain, and everyone wanted to have lunch with me. It's a very creepy experience. The Andromeda Strain, in the 1960s, his first giant book and movie deal. He left medicine and moved to Hollywood, but this intense Easterner was like a Calvinist at a carnival. Because success seemed so easy and so empty, Crichton plunged into the first of a series of depressions, and three marriages ended in bruising divorce. What I love about this next segment, so here's a doctor who decided to see the fertile territory of medicine for storytelling. Jack Klubman was just an actor, but he saw the world of medicine as ripe for storytelling. And then his brother got bone cancer, became a patient, also not a doctor from the other side. But the brother, as a patient, realized this is great for storytelling. Here's the origin of the show Quincy. You're hearing Jack Klugman speak. They kept sending me sitcoms. And one was, because uh, I had won two Emmys with it, so... And Fred, Fred Silverman? Silverman, he then was head of ABC and went up and he laid a whole lot of stuff in front of me and I said, I don't want to do it. He went into his blue book, which is a special half hour sitcom. I said, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do a series. Now listen to what happened. So that year went by and then the next year, 77 I think it was, Manny Jameson, who was my, used to be my agent, a dear friend of mine, Send me Quincy. I read it. I don't want to do this. But I forgot to call her back. And we were very good friends. So I was in the shower when the phone rang and I came out and answered it. She said, What are you, some kind of big shot now? I said, What? I sent you a script three weeks ago. You don't call, you don't tell. I said, Well, I'll tell you the truth. Yeah. So now listen. And then what happened was, I've been thinking about it. It's very interesting, you see. Because it's uh, two heroes and one. He's a cop and he's a doctor and so on. And I'm making up a whole story. And I'm starting to sell myself to this thing. I swear. I said, well, I, but I'll call you tomorrow. And I'm having that thought of all those things. It's right, he's two heroes and one. And I could be a muckraker. I said, so I called next day. I said, I want to have a meeting with Glenn Larson. Who created it. It was terrible. Terrible that way. He hated Glenn Larson, got him fired, and took over control of the TV show. He's now doing well, went from being a, a comedy sitcom actor in The Odd Couple, won Emmys for it, and now he's doing this drama as a doctor, as an actor appreciating all the stories that can come from being a doctor who's a detective. But then fate happened. His brother got cancer all by himself in Philadelphia, and he says, come live with me. And then the brother says, well, let me teach you about writing stories. He says, Calm down. You're a paint salesman. Don't tell me anything about TV business. But the perspective that a patient can have of the fertile ground for storytelling from the world of medicine made his show because he took the brother on as a writer. Listen to this story. I had a funny thing. I had a brother. One of my brothers had cancer. And he was living in Philadelphia, and it was bone cancer. And it was, I went to see him, and it was icy and snow, and I said, Pete, you can't stay here. Well, I said, you fall down in the snow, you break a bone, you're dead, for God's sake. Come out to California, live with me. Well, I do. We'll find something, come on. So I came out to California, got him a little apartment, and he came to work for me. So he was there about a week, and he said, uh, listen, I got an idea for a Quincy show. I said, Pete, he was, a, he was an insurance man, a pain salesman. Pete, take the 600 a week. Enjoy it with your wife. 
come on, you don't know anything about the business. No, I want to participate. He said, I said, Pete, you don't know anything about it. Look at this idea, he said. I looked, I showed him what was wrong with it. He said, all right, I'll, fine. I'll do the research on it. He's got nothing to do. He's getting his chemotherapy and basically slowly dying of his bone cancer. But he sees the fertility in medicine for telling detective stories. Came back about two weeks later with this show, which turned out to be the show that I legislated about orphan diseases. This guy who had never, ever been near show business in any form, we did 17 of his mm. ideas that were 17 of the best shows we ever did. Mm. So you can live your life being something you're not. He said, he put up a picture of five kids, handicapped kids on horses, equestrian farm. He said, there's a show, it's being closed, this place. Mm. Why is this Look at the faces, how happy they are. Five handicapped kids so happy, and it's going to be taken away from them. There's a show there. So he went down, and he did the research. Was always, that was the kind of shows we did. Paid before congressional committees. And I had we had legislation passed that was introduced that we enforced to two shows on the orphan drug disease. The bill and it was passed. I mean, that's what you call something worthwhile. And you get calls from people with this show on sudden infant death, showing how to prevent, how to be aware. A woman said, you saved my child's life mm. with your show. Because uh, we, we learned how to detect when she wasn't breathing. Firstly, everything that we ever said on that show was documented and redocumented and authenticated. Mm. And nobody on the other side ever had less the best argument they could give me. They would give me the script and I would say, but this, uh, this guy's not saying, this lawyer is not expressing his case. Mm. I want to beat him. If I can't beat him at his best, I don't want to do the show. Jack Klugman, may you rest in peace, rescuing his brother Pete, who was a patient. The actor could see the fertility of medicine ripe for storytelling. His brother, the patient, could see medicine ripe for storytelling. Michael Crichton studied medicine at Harvard, but realized, I don't want to be taking care of patients. I can contribute most in life by telling the stories of what happens to the body. Where in sports do you see this creativity of the world of medicine? Clapper vision, painting pictures with words. It is so cool to be able to take a mystery. What's the matter with Luka Doncic's calf? Just like Will Orms asked me. And to use the T-shirt, the vest, or in the case of Zion Williamson, how does a fracture heal? Well... We all know what a glass of water is, and we know what happens when you put it in the freezer. The water, the liquid, becomes slush. The slush becomes ice. The liquid becomes a solid, and you have that transition. That's exactly what happens in healing a fracture. The creativity and the science coming together that's what's so special about using the world of medicine in an artistic way. And at 8.15, coming up next, we're going to hear from an OBGYN doctor for decades, retires, and decides to start writing detective books. The great Dr. Paula Bernstein. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. And don't miss Mason in Ireland back Monday at 1 on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. It's the most entertaining thing in the world. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. From schwitzing like a piece of tuna fish. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710 home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. While we wait to get Dr. Bernstein on the line, I just wanted to share with you, you know, if you listen to the show, you know how much I really have a tirade about 
cortisone and all the rest of it. Well, every 10 years, you need to recertify as an orthopedic surgeon. And I read the most interesting article. Uh, about cortisone in the spine, called an epidural. And it showed that you have a risk of infection if you have an epidural and then later need spine surgery. If it's just a decompression, no. But if you end up needing a fusion, you really have to be careful about having the epidural and waiting one month, two months, three months. You have to wait to really have the dilution of the cortisone take place that's been put in your spine because you run a risk of infection if you then have a fusion. It's interesting to read all of these articles of the current state of technology in medicine. We had our guest from Hawaii call in, a hip surgeon, talking about having an injection of cortisone into your hip and how catastrophic it was to the remaining good cartilage in the hip. So it's really great to have many of the things you hear me tirade about ultimately become justified. One of the other articles that was fascinating to me was if you're going to have shoulder surgery, for example, I do so many shoulder replacements. One of the articles fascinated to me because it was about the risk of having an arthroscopy of your shoulder within 30 days of having a shoulder replacement. You had a bigger risk of infection. It was terrible to see that connection. And as I continue to read these articles about injections and timing of surgery, you may not hear it anyplace else, but you're certainly going to hear it on this show. All right, it's shocking that we're having so much trouble getting her on. I don't understand. All right, I'll keep telling stories, which I'm good at. I did something this week, food-wise, that I would love to share. I came home with a craving for the best cheeseburger. And you can argue whether it's in and out wherever you like to get cheeseburgers. But in my neighborhood is a Shake Shack. My mouth is watering already. I should not be eating before I'm going to be going to sleep, but I don't know. I couldn't help it. Craving. And I went in my car and got the greatest cheeseburger from Shake Shack, French fries, and a shake. Then you go try to go to sleep, which is ridiculous. But the French fries were left over. I couldn't eat them all. I was trying to be dietetic, even though I had a strawberry milkshake and a cheeseburger. Listen to me. I'm trying to be diabetic. Uh, you know, dietetic, I should say. Try, I will be diabetic. And I saved the French fries, most of them. The next morning I got up. This is something I think you all should try. I took the cold French fries that were in the refrigerator overnight, put them in a toaster oven on aluminum foil and heated them up. I then made some sunny-side-up eggs, really crispy. I took a plate, coated the plate with ketchup. I love ketchup. And I took the aluminum foil of the crispy french fries. I put them on the plate that was now covered in ketchup. And then I took the two eggs, sunny-side-up, crispy, and put them on top of the french fries that were sitting on top of the ketchup on the plate. And I took my fork and cracked into the sunny side yolk, which traveled through the white of the egg, through the French fries, and into the ketchup below. So each bite I had was ketchup crispy French fry glued together with the richness of that yellow yolk of the egg. It was the greatest breakfast I ever had in my life. 
Now, it doesn't mean you have to go to Shake Shack and get the French fries, although they're crinkle-cut and delicious. But let me tell you something. Oh, my God, was that delicious. And the food subject for today's show, I'm somehow trying to figure out how to relate it to the fertility of the medical profession and creativity, but I don't care. It's the Brooklyn Italian Ices. And a friend of mine, Robert Grossman, told me, and I, again, you know, I got no time for this. I come home. I'm working hard. I got in the car, and I drove all the way out to Thousand Oaks. It's called Leone's. The exit is Rancho Road. Do me a favor. Do the weekend warrior move. Combine the flavor of pistachio and chocolate, and your head will explode. So delicious. All right, we'll take a break. We're going to try to figure out if we can get Dr. Bernstein. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Hey, it's Sedano. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday than when my guy, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m., Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. It's time for Clapper Killies. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Where has this been my whole life? Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm so excited to talk to and share the thoughts of the great Dr. Paula Bernstein with all of you. Paula, thanks so much for waking up early to be with us. Oh, I always wake up this early. It's really nice to talk to you, Robbie. Oh, How are I just you? love it. I want to play a soundbite for you from the author Michael Crichton, who went to medical school at Harvard and realized that there was more fertility in subject matter of medicine that he could write about than the joy of treating patients. So listen to this soundbite. You know, but when you think about it, why do they want the time? What, is, what does the time mean? They want time. They want to talk. They want to have some. I think that's, that's a kind of healing that can occur, a verbal communication. More and more, medical school became simply material for the thrillers he'd begun writing, as his insistent questioning at Harvard made him a rebel and a pariah. I was becoming accustomed by my third year to often eating meals in the cafeteria alone. Michael Crichton talking about patients just want to talk. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to <laughs> write stories about it. But to connect the fertility of medicine, you practiced OBGYN for how many years? And to be able to tap into that as subject matter is is just awesome. Teach us a little bit about, Paul, the journey to go from practicing OBGYN to then becoming a writer? Um, well, first of all, I have to say that I don't quite agree with Michael Crichton. <laughs> I've loved practice. Um, you know, medicine is intellectually stimulating. It's scientifically creative. And you can make such a difference in people's lives. It's, it's a very emotionally satisfying profession, mm. even with the late nights and the insurance companies. <laughs> so I don't regret one moment of my practice, and I really missed it after I retired. Um, but my writing journey started very early. I wrote my first novel when I was 11. Mm. It was uh, 50 pages long. Um, handwritten, and it was called Scarlet Familian and Lavender Rose. It was inspired by the fact that I was reading my mother's Gone with the Wind. Uh In fact, I got into great trouble in the fifth grade because (laughs) my teacher caught me reading it inside my social studies book. (laughs) Um, Wow. Yeah, so I've always loved to write, and, you know, I've, I've kind of written on and off. Um, medical school and residency were not a, a time of my life when I had time to do anything with my spare time but sleep and occasionally have a meal. But um, once I began practice, I started taking writing classes again at UCLA Extension because they have a wonderful writer's program. And by the time I retired, I had a bunch of first drafts sitting in my file cabinet um, you know, being a serious writer requires um, having a good editor and um, having the time to rewrite and to 
explore the options of publishing, which, you know, with a full-time practice and a, a husband and a young child, I really didn't have. But once I retired, I really turned back to that and, and decided this was something I wanted to spend time with. Hmm. And um, so I invented Hannah Klein, who's been my heroine through um, eight books now. Wow. And she's an OBGYN who practices at a prestigious private hospital, which shall be unnamed, um, in Los Angeles. <laughs> um, and... Uh, Unfortunately, people in her orbit have a bad habit of getting murdered. <laughs> so, so are you like sleeping in the, and in two in the morning, you're sound asleep and all of a sudden your eyes open. You go, oh, my God, I got a great idea. I should do this, this and this. I mean, is it is it an obsession now that you think about this 24 seven? Well, I don't think about it 24 seven, but it's interesting that you touched on the whole idea of the unconscious because if I go to sleep thinking, okay, what should happen in this next chapter, I will often wake up with it. In fact, I have a confession to make, which is that's how I um, did large sections of my Ph.D. thesis many years ago. You know, I would kind of go to sleep trying, with an equation on my mind, and I would wake up with the solution, and if I wrote it down fast enough, I would forget. So the subconscious is very powerful, and, um, yeah, I often dream my good ideas or, you know, wake up with them. Writers have different ways of um, creating. Um, in the mystery world, we call it um, outliners versus pantsers, hmm. meaning you kind of go by the seat of your pants. And hmm. many people who write mysteries will know the whole plot from the beginning. They'll have it carefully outlined, like, you know, writing a scientific paper. And I prefer to let my right brain do the job. Hmm. Um, I start out, well, I start out knowing um, who got killed. Hmm. And I have a whole cast of recurring characters in my series. I've, I've now written eight books and I'm working on the ninth. Um, so, you know, and I know all about their backgrounds and stuff. I mean, it's like they're alive. Um, wow. But So I, I know who gets killed, and there are several things that I try to do with each book. Hmm. Um, I, obviously, I have a whodunit, and those are, in, in a way, standalone mysteries. But then I have characters whose relationships and whose lives um, I follow. For example, Hannah started out in book one as a young widow with a precocious four-year-old, and... Um, in the course of the first mis murder to be solved, she meets this very hunky LAPD detective, and they start a relationship which evolves over the course of uh, the next many books. And a lot of my readers are as interested in what's going to happen to Hannah and Daniel as they are in the mystery. <laughs> and then the other thing I love to do, and, and this has something to do with medicine as well, is I like to introduce my readers to things that I find fascinating um, and that I like to kind of educate people about. Hmm. So often there are things about medicine, like one of my books talked about immune therapy for cancer hmm. in, you know, in language that anyone who doesn't have a scientific background necessarily could understand. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, another of my novels talks about the world of high-tech infertility and some of the major ethical issues that are unsolved with that. Hmm. Um, and then I'm an astronomy junkie, so I killed off an astronomy professor who had just gotten the <laughs> Nobel Prize, and then I taught my readers about the search for extrasolar planets. So, you know, I know, I sort of know what my world is going to be, what education part I'm going to put in my book, hmm. but I go... I just investigate as the murder happens. I make up new characters as I need them. And from chapter to chapter, I just kind of say, okay, what would Hannah and Daniel do next? And eventually, about half to two-thirds of the way in, I figure out which of my many suspects has, is the killer and why. Do, and you have a favorite, way. do you have a favorite mystery, someone that inspired you? I mean, I just love Rex Stout and Nero Wolfe. Because Archie Goodwin is actually telling you the story, uh, not right. here. Do you have a favorite 
murder mystery that really is the gold, the ultimate that you think about as a as a as a role model? Well, I have several favorites. Probably um, my two favorite mystery writers are Elizabeth George and uh, Louise Penny. And I like them both, first of all, because they have such an interesting cast of continuing characters Mm. whose lives I'm interested in, Mm. because they're such fine writers. Uh, You know, they have a great vocabulary. They, um, They express things so succinctly, and they always leave you hanging with each chapter. Um... So those those are kind of my favorite, and I, certainly from Elizabeth George, I got the concept of introduce your reader to a world or a place that they don't know anything about. Hmm. Um, so they're my role models, but oh my God, there are so many wonderful mystery writers out there. Uh, Robbie, I just got back a couple of days ago from a fabulous mystery writers conference in New Mexico, and it was actually in person. Wow. And I could talk to people, not on Zoom. It was such a pleasure. Why did you pick OBGYN? Tell me what your background is like. What did your mom and dad do for a living? Where did you grow up? I grew up in New York in a one-bedroom apartment. My dad worked in a factory in a women's clothing business. He wow. came here by himself at age 12 from Kiev wow. as an immigrant and kind of, you know... <laughs> went to high school at night. He was a highly intelligent man, and and I think had he been born in other circumstances, he would have had a, a much more professional kind of life, but that's what he did to support his family. Yeah. My mom worked as a legal secretary before I was born in the office of the mayor of New York City. Yeah. Um, but they were, you know, like all Jewish parents, they wanted their children to have a really good education and inspired us to do whatever we wanted to do with our lives. So I was very lucky in that way. Um, And how did you pick OBGYN? Of all the things, psychiatry, pediatrics, uh, medicine, surgery, where did OBGYN come to you? Well, it's it's interesting. Um, It was kind of a roundabout route after... In college, I was a chemistry major, and I wanted to be a chemistry professor. And I, you know, I, I had this fantasy of, you know, teaching chemistry at some ivy-covered cottage, but uh, co- college, not cottage, excuse mm-hmm. me. And um, so I went to graduate school. I got a Ph.D. from Caltech and came out at exactly the wrong time when there weren't any academic <laughs> jobs. Um, you know, plus my husband and I had the, you know, two-body problem of, you know, where can we be where both of us can get a job. And so eventually I wound up going to medical school. And at, at about the same time, I became very involved in the women's movement because much to my surprise, when I did go hunting for jobs with my brand-new Caltech Ph.D., I discovered I was the wrong gender and mm. that most chemistry departments were a boys' club and they didn't want to let me in. Mm. So I got pretty angry. And I, I guess part of my feeling at that point was that I wanted to do something for women and to be the best OBGYN I could, hmm. to get involved in women's health, to listen to my patients and, you know, help them feel in control of their childbirth and their reproduction was very important to me. And when I delivered my first baby, it was such a high. I woke up my poor husband at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I said, it's a boy. Um, (laughs) He was very nice about being woken up at 2 in the morning. He got used to it, although he, he eventually got to the point where he could sleep through the phone calls because he knew that the bell was not tolling for him. Uh, what does he do for a living? Uh, he's a physicist. Oh, wow. Um, and he he just retired, actually, but he worked for many years in the aerospace industry on um, radar soft radar and other kinds of imaging software. Um, so we met at Caltech when I was a graduate student. He was in- And what is, is he going to start writing mysteries with a physicist? I don't think so. So um, I think he's still finding his way mm. in terms of how he's going to spend his retirement time. I'm very proud of you, Paula Bernstein, for being able to 
remain true to your roots and and just to be able to say, all right, I'm going to stop doing this, but I'm going to now a new, literally, you know, no pun intended, new chapter in your life that you're going to be writing books. But how great is it to be excited to go to New Mexico? You can just hear it in your voice how fun it is for you to do something. And trust me, at that New Mexico convention with all the writers running around, there's nobody else who's an OBGYN writing mysteries. I love it. You know what? You're right. I mean, there are doctors, but I don't. I haven't encountered an, um, another OBGYN, no. so that is a little bit unique. No. You know, I started out thinking this was my little retirement hobby, but I'm now really starting to think of myself as a writer. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, well, listen, if anything orthopedic comes up, I've been a technical advisor for the TV show ER, the show that Michael Crichton made with Steven Spielberg. It'll be my pleasure to help you if you ever need any orthopedic questions answered i really I already asked you Robbie. I, know. I, I, me. I will always <laughs> be there for you. i will always be there for you and i appreciate you getting up early to be with us and how can people get your book is there a website oh a yeah bookstore? well um i have a website which is called hannah klein mysteries.com okay. great Klein is spelled k-l-i-n-e but also i'm on amazon i'm on barnes and noble you just have to put in paula bernstein and they'll all come up you know you're just you're like a cool person to know that's what you really are and i really appreciate you you're inspiring to all the people listening that you don't have to just stay on the same path you get to have fun with your life and that's clearly what you're doing in this retirement you have god bless you paula and thanks so much for getting up to be with us our, my pleasure, Robbie. Thank okay. you, too. Right. Talk Bye. soon. Talk soon. That's the great Dr. Paula Bernstein. What a treat. What a hoot it is. Everybody else depressed because their one career life has come to an end, but not her. She picked up and decided to do something completely different, which I just think is terrific. Coming up next, I'll take your calls. The number is 877-710-ESPN. And if you tore your meniscus and you're 40 years old, I need to teach you what to ask about your MRI and to really fight hard about not having surgery. And I'll explain. The number is 877-710-ESPN. Listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show. Hey, it's John Ireland. You know there is no better way to start your Saturday than with the man who replaced Michael Thompson's hip, Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. Don't miss my show, Mason and Ireland, back Monday at 1, all here on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. You're not going to leave me alone, are you? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. The Grand Poobah, the Big Kahuna. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Sarah McLaughlin. Thinking about a mystery. The lines are lit up. Let's do some Clapper vision with the clinic. Who are we going to take first, Will? We've got John on the phone. John, you're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help? Hey, Dr. Clapper. Uh, long time weekend warrior. Uh, Love the show. Thanks so much for listening. How young are you? What do you do for a living? I'm 40, and I drive. I'm a truck driver. I love it. What do you drive? What kind of truck? Uh, I drive an 18-wheeler. Uh, nice. So let me ask you a question. You're looking out your window, and you're looking down at all the people in the car. What are they doing in the car? Are they putting makeup on? They're talking on the phone? What What do you see from your truck? I've seen it all. Some, some things I can't even say on radio. <laughs> You'll be surprised how many people do things on purpose just for, for us truck drivers out here. We love it. <laughs> That's amazing. Where did you grow up? What your father do for a living? Um. My father actually was in the industry as well. He uh, had a couple of businesses that he tried to start up in the trucking industry, and mm. unfortunately, it never took off. Um, I grew up in Orange County, right here in uh, wow. well, your Belinda, I guess you can say. But now I live in Irvine, but Orange County, born and bred. Do you drive up to Canada and down into Mexico and to uh, the East Coast? Where do you drive? I'm just local. Uh, okay. Normally, uh, the Port of Long Beach, maybe Montana. Ontario. I just have a, a local gig. Wow, that's good. I, I want to go. I want to go cross country, but my wife. Won't let me, so. Yeah, well, she's smart. We're going to listen to your wife. That's for sure. All right. Are you a Laker fan? No. You're a Clipper not. fan. Uh, I'm a LeBron James fan. There you go. Me I, too. I like, 
respect players more than teams, I guess you can say. Yeah. So I'm not a Laker hater. It's just I'm not a, like go Laker. I'm okay that they're not in the playoffs. I guess. Yeah, so, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, that's legit. But uh, yeah, I'm a Chicago Bears fan. That's what I die hard. So you listen to the Weekend Warriors show over the years. What's your favorite story? Uh, put me on the spot. Why don't you? <laughs> It gives me feedback because I'd love to know what it is. Because I tell so many different stories. I'm just curious which ones hit on different people. That's all. You said the one last weekend. Let me think. It was it was entertaining. It was really, I couldn't get out of the car, but I can't remember. <laughs> oh, that's all right. All right, and how do you stay in shape? What do you like to do? You go to the gym, you swim, you surf, play basketball. Um, what do you do? No, yeah, I play basketball, sure. I'm 6'5", um, but it's just for fun, obviously, in the gym. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely go to the gym all the time, but right now what's happening is I, I hit my funny bone really hard last week, mm. and, you know, it wasn't funny, of course, and it hurts so bad like I've never felt before, and it just continuously, that feeling that you get when you hit your funny bone, it was like for 10, 15 minutes. But, however, it's still there. Like, I can press above my elbow and still feel that pain, or if I stretch my arm out, I still have that funny bone pain. Does it tingle into your fingers? No. Um, no, it's just tingling right there behind my elbow. <laughs> because the elbow, as it relates to hitting your funny bone, is actually more a nerve issue than it is the bone. There are three main nerves, like telephone wires, that come down your arm from your armpit, which is the brachial plexus, a plexus of multiple nerves. It literally looks like... The AT&T repairman opening up the panel or the side of your house and you see green and blue and black wires going everywhere. That's what your armpit looks like, the brachial plexus. And it ultimately forms into three main cables that come down, the median nerve, the ulnar nerve, and the radial nerve. They end up feeding the different tendons and muscles that make up your hand. So when you make an okay sign, you're actually using the median nerve and the muscles that are unique to making the okay sign, your thumb pinching your index finger. If you now look at your hand and spread your fingers, spreading your fingers are the intrinsic muscles of your hand, and that comes from the other wire, which is the ulnar nerve. Remember that, the ulnar nerve, because we're going to get back to that in a second. And the, the final one, is the, is the nerve that allows you to extend your wrist to hold a bottle of, I won't say Corona anymore because after the Super Bowl, I started drinking uh, Michelob Light. Not that I drank <laughs> beer, but it was the most delicious thing I ever drank in my life. And they're not paying me to say this. But to extend your wrist to hold a bottle or a can, that's the radial nerve. And when you break your arm, for example, we have to be very careful Uh, At surgery, if you have to have a plate and screws or a rod put down, because the radial nerve literally wraps around a coil of the humerus bone, your arm bone. The median nerve is very deeply buried in the musculature that's in your forearm and in your arm, and it's really not at risk for damage and fractures or lacerations, but the nerve that sits right under the skin, not protected by any muscles, not lying deep like the median nerve or deep like the radial nerve wrapping around the arm bone. Literally, you can feel it right under your skin is the ulnar nerve. That's the nerve that lets you spread your fingers. That's the nerve that gives sensation to your pinky and half of your ring finger. That's the one that when you bang your arm in a truck or however you did this, and you get this pain that is not going away, it's because there's not a lot of protection for the ulnar nerve. And here's another interesting fun fact, sports-related. When Dr. Frank Job, who I was very lucky to do my fellowship with in 1988, invented the Tommy John surgery, which has rescued the lives and careers of pretty much one in three baseball pitchers in Major League Baseball, Every one of them, it seems like, has had one or two Tommy John surgeries, rebuilding the ligament in their elbow so they can throw a curveball. When Dr. Job did this surgery, he did not appreciate 
that it was also stretching the ulnar nerve right at the elbow. That's the li- that's right near, near where the ligament is. He's rebuilding in the Tommy John surgery, and people don't know this, but he had to take Tommy John back to surgery a month later to transpose and free up the scar tissue around the ulnar nerve, the funny bone nerve, so that Tommy John could actually pitch again. And now, as routine, as part of the Tommy John surgery, we learn from what happened to Tommy John and Frank Job. We actually move the ulnar nerve out of that risky location right under the skin and bury it more under the muscles when a pitcher has that operation. So... You're going to be fine. You're not going to need an operation. You hurt yourself. Get ready for it to last another few more weeks. But you'll draw a line in the sand, John. What is it now, April? I don't know. If uh, May 31st comes and your arm still hurts, then you'll need to have it looked at. But until then, I expect you to continue to improve and improve. If you don't, then you'll need to have it checked out. But I would give it a few weeks' time. All right? Wow. That's amazing. Thank you for that. That that's just just to hear it. It's just it, you're, you're so you're so knowledgeable, so smart, and, and entertaining at the same time. Well, so thank you God very much. bless you for saying that. I think they have a fancy name for it. It's called edutainment. I think that's what I'm doing: Edu- educating and entertaining at the same time. And don't forget about the food. We love it, John. Yeah. Thanks so much. Sure. Listen, you're a total stranger. I want you to find a total stranger today. Do something nice for them. That's how you'll be thanking me, all right? Do it all the time, just so you know. Ever right. since I've been listening to you, I've been doing gas or buy somebody's food or something. Yep, there you I go. All the God time. bless you, John. <laughs> Anytime you need me, you got me right here, okay? Awesome. All right, Thanks. God bless. All right, let's take t- – we got time for one more. Is this another John? Two Johns in a row? Good job, Will Orms. I don't have to know, learn anybody's name. John, you're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help? Well, I had my ankle replaced about three years ago. Really? And that and that didn't work. Oh, so yeah. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah. Did you have it fused? No, I had it completely re- replaced first. Then they fused it after that. Right. That didn't work. That's that's the treat. That's the treatment that you do when you do an ankle replacement and it fails. You do the operation that we always used to do that never failed, which is to basically make the two bones into one and that's what a fusion is so what's going on now yeah. by the way how young are you what do you do for a living i'm 70 years old i own a plumbing company in hollywood which you've probably seen hagen oh, wow. plumbing oh wow good for you We're right across from canners we did the plumbing in canners when they originally opened and you're friends with a couple of my of your patients are good friends of mine, Terry Leonard. Oh, right. oh yeah. He moved to Arizona. Yeah. I miss him terribly. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Oh. And uh, he said if I talk to you to say hello to you. Hey, let me tell you a Terry Leonard story. So he made all the movies, all the uh, Fast and Furious movies, Indiana Jones. That was Terry Leonard. Big Wednesday. He's one of the greatest stuntmen in the history of the movie business. But I... I did 11 surgeries over the years on Terry Leonard. I love the guy. He's always breaking something and doing something. And I rebuilt (laughs) the hip that he had done by someone else. I rebuilt it all. And I put him back together again like a jigsaw puzzle. It was great. And I said, now, Terry, you got to take care of this. you got to let it heal. Stay on the crutches for a little bit of time, and then you'll be fine. So the stuntmen have an event called the Day in the Dirt, all right, where they ride motorcycles and all the rest of it. And so I'm in my office. I see this very nice stunt woman. She says to me, Dr. Clapper, everybody knows that you just did surgery on Terry Leonard. And I was at the Day in the Dirt this weekend. And I just want you to know, he was walking without crutches. So I'm here to tattletale on him. So I called him up. I said, hey, are you not on your crutches? He said, Dr. Clapper, how would you know I wasn't using my crutches? I say, because I got spies everywhere who know who you are. He's one of the most lovable, sweetest, nicest men. It's an honor to know him and to take care of him. And many, many of the stunt men and women that really make the movies in this town that people really don't know because they fly under the radar. What did you do to yourself? How can I help you? Well, uh, I still rope. I still chase cattle. I rope with Terry the whole time he was living here. And, wow. the- and, uh, and sports and so forth, you know, racing motorcycles, basketball. Just I had a baseball scholarship to Davis. Wow. And... I started working for my dad during the summer, and I liked the work so much. 
I became a plumber. Listen, if you went to medical school, you'd become a vascular surgeon or a urologist. You, all those plumbing ideas, let me tell you, they come in handy when you're trying to put someone's bladder back together again. I bet you they do. <laughs> and the other one that you know very well, one of my relatives, is Alan Kay. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, for sure. These are all people I remember. You know what's weird? 33 years, 16,000 surgeries. I see 100 patients a week. I, if I close my eyes... I can actually be back in the operating room and see Alan Kay and Terry Leonard and every other patient I've done surgery on. I close my eyes. I see the anatomy. It's amazing. My wife goes, this is like a sickness that you're able to do this. But I can absolutely. The name, I put it together. If I've operated on you, I remember for the rest of my life what I saw inside your body. It's really amazing. So, yeah, I, well, Alan Kay, I remember, but more importantly, I remember what the inside of his body looks like. <laughs> Something I can tell you is they're both doing real well. Well, good. Very, it's nice to know. Well, thank you for the update. Thanks for calling. How you? Do you need anything from me? Yeah. So I had the ankle replaced, and that didn't work. And then three years later, they fused it, and that didn't work. And I just went back two weeks ago, and they opened it up and said some of the screws were loose. And they did bone grafts, and mm-hmm. I was just wondering what the percentages are of that actually working. Hmm. Can I tell you something? This is, this sure. comes from the bottom of my heart right now. I'd love you to get an opinion from a young surgeon. I know everybody, and I know the old ones. Okay. But this particular guy is so smart and interesting, and you, your personality and his personality would get along great. You should have him take a look at your ankle and give you another opinion and give you okay. his thoughts. So you got a pencil? You want to write this down? I'll remember it. He's at Cedars. His first name is Max. Max Mahalski. M-I-C-H-A-L-S-K-I. He's been a guest on the show. He's in practice about a year now, but he's he's like he's an engineer who became an orthopedic surgeon. And for your foot and ankle, and he doesn't do anything but that, he would sit down with you and go through academically what you've got to look forward to better than anybody else. And I know all the big shots, but that's the guy that you should go see. And then after you see him, you call and let me know how it went. Very good. I do appreciate it a bunch. All right, young man. Listen, you're a, you're a total stranger, except I feel like I've known you forever. So uh, you, you need to find a total stranger today. Do something nice for them. That's how you'll be thanking me. I shall. you okay. be well. Young man, good. A pleasure to talk to you. God bless you. Have a great day today. All right, Warriors. That's it. Amazing. I could keep talking, Will. But what a show we had. What fun we had. A lot of clapper vision, a lot of calls. Until next week, we're going to have a great guest next week, a veterinarian. We're going to talk about pet food. We're going to talk about Purina. Can you imagine? Pet food. But also, we're going to talk about the Mars family, the Mars candy family. They own all the pet food companies. Did you know that? Unbelievable. But I also want to talk about the history of the Wheaties box. Food, sports, art, medicine. That's what you'll hear next week. The great Dr. Liz Hicks, a veterinarian, is going to talk to us. Until next week, I'll see you on the radio.